Demographics are destiny. We grew up in the world and mind of the baby boomers simply because there were so many of them. They were the biggest, easiest, most free-spending market the planet had ever known. What they wanted filled the shelves, and what fills the shelves is our history. They wanted to dance, so we had rock and roll. They wanted to open their minds, so we had LSD. They did not want to go to war, so that was it for the draft. Now, we will grow old in the world and mind of the millennials because there are even more of them. Because they don't know what they want, the culture will be scrambled and the screens a never-ending scroll. They are not literally the children of the baby boomers, but might as well be, because here you have two vast generations linking arms over our heads, akin in the certainty that what they want, they will have, and what they have is right and good. The members of the in-between generation have moved through life squeezed fore and aft, with these tremendous populations pressing on either side, demanding we grow up and move away or grow old and die. But it's become clear to me that if this nation has any chance of survival, of carrying its traditions deep into the 21st century, it will in no small part depend upon members of my generation, Generation X, the last Americans schooled in the old manner. The last Americans that know how to fold a newspaper, take a joke, and to listen to a dirty story without losing their minds. Generation X is the last great hope due to their irony and keen sense of dread. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of Syncbook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. It's Tuesday, October 10th, and today we are accepting the fact that we had to sacrifice one whole Saturday in, in detention, but we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. Yes, today for 42 Minutes... We are considering humility and irony with author Rich Cohen, responsible most recently for The Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse, published October 3rd by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. When Rich Cohen was eight years old, his father took him to see a Cubs game. On the way out of the park, his father asked him to make a promise. Promise me you will never be a Cubs fan. The Cubs do not win, he explained, and because of that, a Cubs fan will always have a diminished life determined by low expectations. That team will screw up your life. As a result, Cohen became not just a Cubs fan, but one of the biggest Cub fans the world has ever known. Cohen is author of New York Times bestseller, Tough Jews, The Avengers, Monsters, Sweet and Low, When I Stop Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead, and The Sun and Moon and Rolling Stones. He is a co-creator of the HBO series Vinyl and contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, and has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Harper's Magazine, among other publications. Cohen has won the Great Lakes Book Award, the Chicago Public Library's 21st Century Award, and the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for Outstanding Coverage of Music. His stories have been included in the Best American Essays, the Best American Traveler Writing, and he lives in Connecticut, though he's not proud of it. It's really an honor to be sharing 42 Minutes with an outstanding writer. How are you doing today, Rich? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I originally found you by way of your essay in The Believer about your father and buying one's first car. It really made a, oh. it made a lasting <laughs> impression on me. Was your father a boomer, or was he from the preceding generation? No, he was a Korean War veteran, so I think they call him the quiet generation. They sort of, they're similar to Generation X in that they got caught between you know, their parents, which is the greatest generation, and... The baby boomers and my father used to always laugh that they never got a they never had a president, you know. 
uh, because he went, I think they thought Mario Cuomo would be their president. They went straight from George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, the father who was, you know, World War II pilot to Clinton. And you skipped them completely, mostly because there just weren't that many of them. Very similar phenomenon. Yeah, and Clinton was definitely a boomer. Like, he was the first boomer president, right? Right, and you just skipped right over that generation. You went from, you know, basically World War II generation to Vietnam generation, if you want to think about it in terms of wars. Okay, well, so you have a, a number of pieces out in the world floating around, but I think that there's a theme about humility in all of them, which is really fascinating. Let's let's just start with the piece about Trump and um, the opinion piece that was just in the New York Times. You know, what is it that typifies Trump as a Yankees fan, and how do you differentiate, you know, the world in these two kind of either Cubs fans or Yankees fans? Well, I don't know for sure if he is a Yankees fan. I'm just saying he seems like he would be. And, of course, the joke is, as somebody pointed out to me, my father is a Yankees fan, so... It's almost like I've turned Trump into my father in some weird way. But um, to me, the Yankees, you know, they won. They just, until recently, until the death of George Steinbrenner, they just only won, it seemed like. And there was a period, you know, between Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle where they won, I don't know how many in a row. But, you know, it was the, the whole movie Damn Yankees was about that, how they, they always won. And they were kind of about winning, which is what Trump is about, and about only winning. And, of course, and expecting to win, and anything that's not like Ricky Bobby, if you're not in first, you're last. So, and the Cubs, of course, like the Yankees early in the history of their franchise, they were the best team like from like 18, 1876 to 1908. They're the best team. That's a long time. And then suddenly they set off on this 108-year trek through the wilderness, and I grew up kind of in the middle of that period, really a Cubs fan from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And as a Cubs fan you get all these other things, which is you kind of learn the value in losing, and you learn about defeat, and you learn about humility, and you learn about the stuff that really matters, which is basically how you play the game and how, you know, I always said about Ernie Banks, who's a great Cub, like anybody can be gracious when they're winning. The person who can lose, you know, and still maintain their dignity, that's a real aristocrat, and that was a quality I thought that Trump didn't have. Trump is, he's a boomer, right? Uh, yeah, he's absolutely a boomer. He's almost the epitome of the boomers, which is, you know, they're sort of this, they sort of take the world with them. They pull up the ladder behind them. There's just so many of them that they, they don't need to play to anybody but their own generation because that's a big enough market. You know, if you're in the market and you're generation X, you have to sort of play to the people above you and the people below you in age. If you want to have a really big audience, because there's just not enough of us to fill the house basically. And so then is, I, I think, is, is narcissism one of the traits of the boomers? Well, it's one of the traits of Trump for sure. And it seems like, you know, we're, of course, generalizing. Everybody's an sure. individual. And, yeah. But it seems like it is because basically there's, like, it's, there's just so many of them that whatever they want, they would have. The market would give them. The, the, thing, the, list, the list you read at the beginning, like, you know, they wanted rock and roll, so they had rock and roll, and they wanted, um, they didn't want to go to the war. I mean, they just didn't want, you know, every generation had gone through the draft. Just look at it this way. Every generation in America since, I don't know, since World War II, there had been a draft. And, and there was a feeling that America was sort of had this global role after the war, 
And the draft had this great side benefit that was unintended of two things. One, it forced people from all different regions of the country and all different races and creeds to live together at a very impressionable age in very tight quarters. So it kind of turned them into a nation. And also, because of the GI Bill of Rights, which came out of World War II, it became this great program that let people that might not be able to afford to go to college go to college if they wanted to. My father went to college, and, I, and yeah, I'm not sure if they paid for his law school, but he certainly went to college on the GI Bill of Rights, something that would have been hard otherwise. Well, the baby boomers, you know, the reason was Vietnam was a bad war, blah, 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 blah. And it was, but, you know, Korea, not, no war is good. And they didn't want to go to war. They didn't want to go into the army. So ultimately, it became just politically impossible to continue a draft. So they got rid of the draft. And so we kind of, that atomized the country more. The, the military became all volunteer, which in a weirdly uh, perverse way made it easier to go to war because these people had volunteered. I mean, that's how it looks. So, and then the vast people, majority of people who might stop a war that was a bad war because they didn't want their kids in the war, they didn't want to go to the war, they didn't really, weren't personally involved in the same way. So it kind of, that one thing alone, the end of the draft, completely changed the nature of the country, I think. In your piece about Generation X and Vanity Fair, you write about how the boomers were revolting against, you know, their their parents, which was this uh, greatest generation from World War II. But you, you speak about how the uh, the boomers perceived the, their parents as, as being empty. Could you speak about that a little bit? Well, I sort of thought when I got to know people older than me that you call baby boomers, that the, the baby boom generation was kind of a revolt against, we always heard about the conformity of the 50s, you know, and how the 50s was uh, Eisenhower and kind of black and white movies and real conformity and, um, and people doing what they're told and people settling for quiet, boring, corporate lives of conformity. And the term that was often used was the man in the gray flannel suit. You know, and we, my particular group that I was friends with, we grew up in the suburbs, and there was that sense of that that we got from the boomers that this was kind of an artificial life created by our parents because they were conformists. But, of course, when you look at it, what really happened was, if you look at The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, which was often quoted, that book's not about that at all. That book's about a World War II veteran who basically saw absolute horrors in the war actually killed somebody this is what i quote in the piece it wasn't just making it up you know i wasn't just using a figure of speech who in that movie kills gets in a fight with the german over a coat and kills him in the woods with his bare hands and when he gets home all he doesn't he's not ambitious he doesn't want to climb the corporate ladder he doesn't care about any of that he just wants to live a quiet good life and raise his kids in a peaceful environment after having what is surely some kind of PTSD. And the irony, of course, is he raises this kid in this environment that's a reaction to his own experience, but the kid then believes that the father is living in this peaceful place because he's in some way a conformist or boring, and it's the opposite of the truth, so he rebels against what he sees as something that's boring and conformist, and that's the baby boom generation. That's what we grew up in. And, of course, the entire thing is based on a misunderstanding, which he hasn't understood his own father. Um, you know, that's taking history and turning it into two people. But that's really what I thought. I saw the whole baby boom thing 
was based on a misunderstanding about the generation before him. But then you mention in the piece how Gen X was still schooled and parented in the old style. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, I'm also talking about my own father, who wasn't a boomer, who was from the Korean War generation. The boomers were more like our older siblings. You know, we heard everything that they said. We were with them at parties and stuff. But the, the, the lessons we were getting about the way the world worked, you know, really came from our parents who were not boomers. They were Korean War veterans, in some cases World War II veterans, if you had older parents. And the same especially goes when we went to school, because the teachers in school were older. So, and they had this kind of older sense of America, where there you know, was this kind of draft, shared sacrifice, where history was psychotic, you know, where the idea that, you know, um, the quote you often hear from Martin Luther King, which is a great quote, which is the long arc of history bends toward justice. But if you lived through World War II, the Holocaust, Stalin, you wouldn't necessarily think that. Hitler came very close to winning that war, you know, and, and within a couple weeks probably winning that war. And it was a very close thing, and it could have turned out a different way in which history does not to- bend towards justice at all. It's a nightmare. And, um, and that, I think, is what we got from the older generation, that tragic sense of history. Yeah, and then, so, when Generation X was a thing, it seemed like the critics were always latching on to how, like, unmotivated or just, it's interesting to me in the sense that, you know, it's the it's the irony that is always kind of uh, the the thing that typifies Generation X, but irony is being able to hold two opposing things in your mind at the same time, which gives one like the ability to see from someone else's point of view, but then also this nuance that um, the idea that everything that you think is right and true because you're, you know, the majority. Right. And also, you know, the idea that activity or doing stuff as in itself, some kind of accomplishment is wrong. You know, so there's this movie, which is kind of a, really a Generation X movie that was kind of forgotten called The Tao of Steve. And the guy has one line I always thought of where he said that he's being criticized for not doing more. And he says, you know who did a lot of stuff? Hitler. Don't we all wish he did less stuff? And I sort of think that well, a lot of what Generation X was criticized for was inactivity and being kind of slackers. It, it was just a question of being young and figuring out you know, what to do and where to find space to do it underneath this tremendous demographic bubble of the boomers and where can you cut your own space. So what they see is um, almost like the kid, like in the movie you quoted The Breakfast Club, what they see as inactivity, I see as, you know, um, deliberation. Hmm. The other interesting thing now that I think back to my own youth is this idea of like, the biggest sin for Generation X was to to sell out. Right. You know, whether well, you're a musician or a writer or whatever, there was this authenticity that we all really aspired toward, and it wasn't so much like financial. And I could never explain that to my father. It wasn't financial success that we were after. It was after uh, authentic success, I guess. Or Well, I think that because basically the baby boomers, at that age, when they were the, you know, we were like, let's say 20, 
they talked a lot about, um, you know, their ideals in the world and the world they wanted. And it seemed really different from what they were actually doing in the world they actually had. And that made it seem like there was this big gap and that's hypocrisy. And um, so there was this idea of trying to keep more in line the world you said you wanted and what you did. And that would seem like being a slacker and that would, that would irritate the hell out of older people. But some of it's just being young, but some of it is, you know, the baby boomers basically, a lot, a lot of people, again, talking about a whole generation of people here, they would sort of do what they wanted to do and then ascribe values to it. That's the feeling I always got. So um, do whatever's most convenient at the time and then call that a positive good. So, um, and I think that that was because we were just a little bit younger and we were watching them. It was very apparent what was going on, that they were lying to themselves. So you wanted to do something that was more honest or at least be honest about what we were doing, which is, you know, if you want to make money, you want to make money. You know, you don't, you're not, you're not doing it because you are a, the greatest person and doing something no one's ever done. And, but because, you know, you want to make money and buy stuff, basically as simple as that. Well, so let's uh, kind of maybe f fast forward to another generation, but maybe. <laughs> you also wrote a big piece about Jared Kushner in Vanity Fair. I'm wondering, do you read him as uh, a Gen, Gen Xer, or do you think he's more millennial? I mean, he's kind of like on the cusp birthday-wise. I think he's a I think he's – I don't know, first of all. I've never met him, okay? So I don't know. But – Looking from the outside, it looks to me like he's a millennial. And um, what he did at the New York Observer is he took a paper that was a real physical newspaper and he turned it into a website. And that's a very, you know, that's the millennial. It's sort of invented by Generation X and perfected by the millennials and, and made into the tool that it is. And um, so to me, he looks like a millennial. And I love in that piece how you how you invoke the Godfather because it seems like sometimes when you get down to like the archetypes, you can really get a sense of how things are working. So <laughs> where did you arrive? Is he, is he uh, Michael or is he Fredo? I, it looks to you. I don't know. That's, it's just a question, you know? I mean, my friend asked, is he Michael or is he Sonny? And I said, well, maybe he's Fredo, you know? And we don't, and it's, it's the, but the main point, wasn't even answering that question or the main point is the first thing you said, which is so much of the coverage of Trump and Kushner and everything else right now is about breaking news moment by moment. That's the internet. That's their publishing cycle. It's very hard to stay in the news and to do it. You have to break news constantly. And what that means is you never step back and look at the big picture and what's happening with this, these families that are running America right now, Whatever you think of them, it's really strange. And there's a deep weirdness to it, and it's almost archetypes like the Godfather. And the other thing I quoted was the book of Samuel, the Bible. Um, and because everyone's so focused on what's happening the second, no one's stepping back. So my idea in that story was to step back and see him, see the big picture and try to recapture some of the strangeness of what's happening in, in this country right now. Well, so, I mean, it does feel like beginning last November, you know, all of a sudden reality got co-opted and we're part of this reality show. 
and and all we can do is just kind of hang on especially initially it really felt shocking like it was really hard to just there was too much it was hard to turn off reality because it seemed like it was too much every every day was breaking news uh i wonder you know <laughs> are you a hopeful person is there is there a good ending to this story i don't know i mean i am a hopeful person the truth is and honestly i mean i think that the most important thing to say like as a journalist as a writer as a person is say you don't know when you don't know i I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this... I ask people all the time, how does this play out? I mean, I was hoping that Trump would turn out to be, you know, great president. Who knows? You know, he's, he's turned out to be more of what he was when he ran, which is, like you said, a reality show. And a lot of what happens feels like it's his instincts as the producer of a reality show, which is interest is flagging right now. So let's introduce a new character. Let's, you know, introduce Scaramucci. It's like introducing, uh, you know, um, a new character on 30 Rock. You know, let's bring in four or five episodes, get some interest, and we'll shuffle them out. You know, let me say uh, what, he, what he said the other day. Um, this is the calm before the storm because we need a good tagline, you know. So it does feel like almost the best way to revolt against that, and this is the Gen X way, is just not to care. I mean, until you have to care, not to, not to let yourself get whipped up every single time, but just trying to detach from it because it's just happening. And honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's like watching some kind of, uh, you ever been like in a spin out in a car? Yeah. Like there's a moment when you realize I'm not in control of this car. You know, I can shut off the engine. I can turn into the spin and hopefully I'm just going to come to rest gently in the snowbank. And of course there's a chance that I'll sail off the mountain but it's just happening right now, and right now I feel like I'm just watching, and that's how I feel a lot of the time. There's something else kind of from a generation, generational perspective that's happening too that's, that's interesting. Uh, is, is this, you know, so the Harvey Weinstein thing, you, you have him, you know, typifying this boomer kind of generation, and then you have people like uh, Lena Dunham, or Amber Tamblin, uh, Rose McGowan, and you know, so they're stepping forward, and and so it it does, you know, it does feel like it, it just a, a strange moment. I mean, I mean, it's it's good that we're moving, you know, in a progressive sort of way, but at the same time, it feels like these big generational forces. Yep, that's kind of what the Gen Gen X piece was about, which is you have this almost struggle between the millennials and the boomers in that case. I mean, and um whatever i mean I, I, it's, but it's like sort of that's why i think that the way it's covered is good you know we want to know all the details and and it's fascinating and it's terrifying and it's horrible and it's wrong and all that stuff but also like you know in the 1970s the older writers they weren't boomers man i'd be like norman mailer tom wolf joan didion okay those people are not baby boomers, and they realized that what was happening was so beyond um, ordinary, standard-form journalism to cover that they invented new journalism really to cover it, which is, it is a novel. I mean, now it is not a novel. Like you said, it's a reality TV show. 
and you can't really cover it just by breaking news because you're missing the huge tectonic shifts that are going on. So I think you're right. I mean, I think it's something above and beyond the details that are appearing in the stories. Your Jared Kushner piece, part of the fun of that is that it has, you know, your your uh, Corleone family is, is Jewish. And so there's this real, you know, uh, where's the, the hotel is the Fontainebleau? Is that what it's called? The Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau. Yeah, in Miami Beach. Yeah. Um, what it... How do you wrap your head around the perception of what Trump is and then Jared Kushner as part of that? I don't even my head, I mean it just I can't I don't understand how it works. Um I'm not sure what I mean look the reason why I focused on the Fontainebleau is because the Fontainebleau if you're Jewish, okay, and probably if you're not Jewish, but Miami Beach all our grandparents got old or of my generation, and, and they moved to Miami Beach, okay? And there was this boom in Miami Beach where they built these huge hotels, one after another, and that's where everything was going on. Sinatra was there. The Rat Pack was there. Jerry Lewis was there. John F. Kennedy was there. You know, the Cubans were there. I worked on a TV show called Magic City for the stars for one year, and it was basically about the Fontainebleau. And the Fontainebleau appears in pop culture of that era over and over and over again. And it is like the fanciest, biggest, gaudiest hotel there is. And, um, and the idea that the Kushners would have Passover, Passover Seder, okay, which is, you know, remembering your flight from Egypt when you were, where you were slaves and you were a stranger and all that stuff from the book of Exodus, to be telling that story in the Fontainebleau which is the hotel with a bar in the middle of the swimming pool. You know, the hotel where, uh, you know, Scarface, where Tony hangs out when he first comes to America to get a sense of America. That just has incredible resonance. And then the fact that at one of those theaters, there's this big family fight between the Kushners that results in a series of actions that wind up with Jared Kushner's father going to prison and Jared Kushner taking over the family business and then buying the New York Observer, which results in him meeting Ivanka Trump. You know, it's like the game Mousetrap. And then ultimately becoming the son-in-law of uh, Donald Trump and becoming the guy in this key spot in the White House. It's almost like you'd have to be kind of a Tolstoy to really understand it. And um, it's, just, it's just weird, and it's interesting, and it's often overlooked because we're so focused on what happened in the last 24 hours. And there's a big thing going on here, a big family drama, huge. When I read Trump, it's hard for me not to to take him at his word. I, I mean, TV might be different in the sense that what you're the what you're trying to the audience that you're trying to reach or whatever the the episode is trying to communicate shifts over the story's arc. But because it's hard for me to inhabit a reality TV show, I just want to take things at their face value and so it really seems like we have a racist president is the way it seems but then to have so some of the i would say we have we have a ratings president you know i mean whatever works whatever remember, i gotta remember that trump ran for president before it seemed to me like several times I always remember him running for president, and he was a joke, and no one voted for him. It's like he kept knocking on the same door, and it just 
happened that last year, a whole bunch of things lined up and somebody answered that door, you know, and basically his main, he has, I think one of his main motivators is he doesn't want to be humiliated. Okay. So he ran in that election originally, I think, because it would be free publicity for him. He would build his brand. Okay. He would get free TV time. People would say nice things about him on national TV. And then he'd go back to his life. And then suddenly the door opened and he was inside. And then people started saying really mean things about him. And he felt like he was being humiliated. Okay. And then he just found an audience that would support him. And that's an alt-right audience. And he went with it because they were there. I mean, I honestly think the guy's got nothing inside at all. It's just whatever, whatever audience is going to be there, he's going to go for that audience. It's like you make a product, and whoever wants to buy it, those are your customers. You know, so, um, and I think that, that he's just surfed that, and it's taken into all kinds of terrible places. And now he's in this horrible position. I don't know if he realizes it or not. But, you know, his whole thing was not to be humiliated by the Republicans and then not to be humiliated by Hillary and to do whatever he had to do to prevent that from happening. And now he's going to go down as possibly like the worst president in history. And um, who knows what's going to happen. And it's going to be this level of humiliation, I think, that he hasn't even really grappled with. I could be wrong. You know, like I said, I don't know what's going to happen. And I hope everything works out well. But it just seems like he's sort of surfed this wave and it's gotten him into a really bad place. And And... We'll see what happens, but I don't think it's that he's necessarily a racist. I just think that he's whatever, whoever will support him, you know, he'll take that support. Hmm. Okay, so then if Gen X is the last great hope, and I know that that was kind of kind of tongue-in-cheek too, but um, who are some promising Gen X politicians? Are there any that you, you know or can think of? Huh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is a question because really being Gen X kind of goes against being a politician. Those things kind of don't really go together in some way. I mean, I don't really know. I've never been a political junkie type. I don't see any politicians out there I'm hugely excited about. Do you? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I liked I liked Bill Clinton a lot when I was really young and he, because he was different. I, I, I can't, I liked, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, you know, and maybe that is, I think our problems are cultural, okay? And I think that if we, get our, if we sort of can get back on a decent track culturally, then the politicians will arise out of the culture. I, see, I don't think Trump caused any of this. I think he's a result of it. So I think that you have kind of a really scary thing where you're going almost to a post- printed paid society, which means the ed, what people know is much shallower. And it be, does become like a TV show where it's like a reality show where whoever is hot right at the time of the election, they're going to win. You know, and um, that's how our elections are. The knowledge is really shallow. There's, and it's scary. And I think you've got to kind of fix that. And then if you fix that, then you'll get the good politicians. But right now, the good politicians can't be elected. And the only way they can be elected is if they just happen to be good politicians and good people who also 
are good at being reality TV stars. And there's just a few people like that. That's just luck. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of the other things you note, uh, mentioned in your, in your Gen X piece is how Generation X had to go out. You know, it was a hands-on generation. So even if we wanted to be slackers and play video games, we had to actually go to arcades and plunk quarters into Robotron right. and Dig Dug. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's true. You get It's just like a lesser version of the thing I said about my father's generation, which is they, they were, there was a draft. So they had to really go out. I mean, they had to go to the military and they had a, you know, and they had a, and when I was a kid, video games were really just starting. They were boring. You know, they could only hold your attention for so long. And so you went out into the woods or wherever you went downtown into the city. You had all kinds of adventures because that was the most interesting thing to do. You got on the L and you went to see the Cubs and you sat in the right left field bleachers and you got drunk, you know. But now it's like if you look at the video games my kids play, you understand it. They're so good. How can anything compete with that? You know, why try to struggle to do these things when everything you have is right already right there on the computer? And it's a real problem of motivation because it's a real tough thing to compete with because it's just – and they're going to get better. You know, and we're going we're gonna to have a problem. We already have a problem. Every parent of little kids knows it, which is it's – I have trouble staying off my phone, and I'm almost 50, okay? I know that the phone, as it is, as it is in the last 15 years, has, has really degraded my uh, quality of life. My life is worse day-to-day because of my phone, yet I can't give up the phone because it's addictive. And now I think of my kids who are very young and their brains aren't formed. How are they supposed to reject this stuff and develop their own sense of self and their own sense of the world when the, when the phone is just pulling them in or the computer? It's really, really hard. Hmm. So then do you take them to baseball games? I do. We do all kinds of stuff. We try to, you know, try to keep them as much as possible off the computers, but the school puts them on the computers because they think that this is the future and they have to know, you know, how to navigate it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure that's right. But the problem is that they're missing out on the rest of their life. Mm. And if they are going to revolt against you, where does that put them? Do they end up Yankees fans or is it not that basic? I don't know. I mean, the funny thing is, I, I, the thing with my father and the Cubs is true, but I never really revolted against my father. That really was the boomers. I mean, I kind of understood that my father made a bunch of decisions, ended up where he ended up for a whole bunch of reasons having to do with his life. You know, and um, I didn't feel animosity towards that at all. I understood that he was a person who lived his life and things he wanted to happen happened and things he wanted to happen didn't happen. You know, and um, and will my kids revolt against me? I don't know. I don't think I lay down any big law to revolt against, but maybe I do and don't realize it. But basically, I just know that, you know, the virtual world is just super seductive and ultimately it's shallow and you're not going to get any nearly as much out of it as you would out of the real world. Well, and then... One of the ironies is that this this greatest generation may have created the the narcissism of the boomers in that they wanted them to have everything, 
You know, like I've heard that. Yeah, because they came out of the great, everybody's a reaction to what came before, that's all. They came through the Great Depression and World War II, and they wanted something different and better for their kids. So everybody believes in progress and all that. And like I said, I believe that the kids misunderstood it and saw all that as kind of plastic and artificial and phony and conformism when it really wasn't. It was a rea- it was a response to the most psychotic 50 years in the history of the world. So then tell us a little bit about about the new book. You know, so you're definitely uh doing the the touring now for the promotion of this. What can readers expect from this? Is that is it is it a lot of baseball or is it, you know, what could you tell us about the book? Well, it's about, you know, the history of baseball and the Chicago Cubs and the curse, but basically I'm interested like what connects all my work cuz you mentioned at the beginning is American history and the history of this country. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in baseball and the Cubs, in addition to being a fan, is I feel like the history of the Cubs is the history of America seen in a funhouse mirror. And then if you tell it right, you know, from the very early days when the Cubs started as a pro baseball team early in the 1870s, right after the Civil War, you know, up through the beginning of the National League and their first great star. Cap Anson, who really created the, the color line in baseball, you know, through Mordecai Three Finger Brown and Grover Cleveland Alexander, a great Cubs pitcher who went off to World War One and was bombarded and came back kind of ruined and would have seizures on the mound, you know, all the way up through the Civil Rights era and the new millennium. You kind of get the history of America told via this one organization, one team, with this one amazing history and very, very vivid characters. So hopefully what you get is a big picture of America, baseball, and how we got from there to here, told through one team that suffered this incredible drought. The curse. Who, who put the curse on the Cubs? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, the, the traditional notion of the curse is that 1945, uh, William Cianis, who owned the Billy Goat Tavern, which you can still go to in Chicago, and that's you know, from Saturday Night Live, the cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. That's the Billy Goat Tavern. Okay. The, the Billy Goat Tavern, Greek diner owner, and they had a Billy Goat named Murphy. Murphy had been this Billy Goat that was on the way to the slaughter yards, fell off the back of the truck. A cop brought him into the bar. William Sanis fed the Billy Goat out of a baby bottle, kind of adopted the Billy Goat, changed the name of his place to the Billy Goat Tavern, and would bring this Billy Goat all around the city. Brought the Cubs to the 1940, uh, Billy Goat to the 1945 World Series. There's pictures of the Billy Goat going through the turnstile. Had a ticket for the Billy Goat. They got to their seats. They sat down to watch the game. And the people in their section complained. And the complaint went all the way up to Phil Wrigley, who owned the team. And Phil Wrigley kicked out Cianis and his goat. And when asked for a reason, because they had tickets, Phil Wrigley said, because your goat smells. And that night at the Billy Goat Tavern, Sianis made his famous declaration, The Curse, where he said the Cubs will never win again until the right thing is done by the Billy Goat. Okay, and when the Cubs lost that World Series in seven games, the last World Series they appeared in until last fall, uh, Sianis wrote a famous telegram to Wrigley where he said, Who smells now? And that's the curse. And Wrigley apologized and said, please bring the goat. But Murphy had died. And the goat said he brought back, because he would try to remove the curse, 
was a different goat. So that is the curse of the billy goat, which is always kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of a joke. But then the Cubs experienced, as years went by, these crazy late-season, late-game collapses that made the curse seem less like just a funny story than like something really was going on. And um, I went back many times and tried to figure out why the Cubs can't win. Because just by the, you know, there was a line in a great Steve Goodman song where he said, the law of averages says everything will happen that can, but the last year the Cubs won a National League pennant is the year we dropped the bomb on Japan. I mean, it really did seem like the Cubs should just win by the law of averages. And then I went back and looked at all, because there's many different explanations for what could be the curse. The Billy Goat's the most famous. The color line, which is the original sin of baseball, that's another explanation. Uh, the 1908 season, the last one they won, they stole, people consider, a key game from the New York Giants on a technicality. They should never have gotten to that World Series. That's considered the curse. And you just go right on through up until the Bartman game, which was, you know, when that fan reached out and the Cubs fell apart. There's a superstitiousness to baseball. Do you find that that's, it's superficial or that they really – I mean, so – when when they when a team or when when fans believe in something, is it like a religious belief or is it more? Do they realize that it's not? It's not. Literal? No, it's exactly like a religious belief. You kind of have a tendency to turn in anything you believe into a religion, and when you do something many many times, 108 seasons, 154 games, and then 162 games a season. World Series, postseasons, every day thinking about this team. You start to see patterns, you know? It's like the way you look at clouds and see faces that aren't really there. You start to think, you know, you get to this crazy point. I've gotten to it. You're like, it seems like when I watch the game, the Cubs lose. And when I don't, when I don't watch the game, the Cubs win. So if I love the team, I can't watch them. <laughs> I mean, I've, that's happened to me. Or the, or the opposite. This season... I noticed that the Cubs are having a very bad first half, and whenever I watched them, they seemed to win, but when I wasn't watching them, they seemed to lose. I had to watch every single inning of every single game, driving my family crazy. That's, out of stuff like that, you add 500 years, you have a very developed religion. And that's really why, it, and so what starts as superstition later becomes a kind of orthodoxy and a way of doing things. Then you get things like the seventh inning stretch, and standing up for the national anthem, which there's been a big debate about. All, that's, all that is how religions develop, and being a serious fan of a team is a kind of religion. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. All right, great talking to you. Really fun. You bet. You've been listening to Rich Cohen on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. Check out his website at authorrichcohen.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all of our archives are free until year's end. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And what you want is always out of reach. Sometimes it's miles out of reach. Sometimes you can almost touch it. If you do touch it, you will realize after a week or two that it's not really what you want, that what you really want is still out of reach.